No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. For this special 2019 Brooklyn Book Festival event, we partnered with the Astoria Bookshop for an evening of poets and comedians trading true tales inspired by the theme, Amuse. First up, Pachenda Bao's Speak Muse contemplates the roles we are assigned in life and the roles we adopt. Refugee, American, daughter, mother, artist, citizen. The compromises we make for survival and the ways we interpret silence. And ultimately, how we can expand, not contract, our relationship to each other and the world. Read for us here by Carolyn Castilia. The theme is Amuse. Some people know that sometimes we, you know, dig deep and have like really literary you know, dig into the process questions. Sometimes I rip things off the internet. Tonight, it's all questions that amuse me. <laughs> things that I want to know. So my question for you, Chenda, is if you could be any toy, any toy, <laughs> what would you be? It's cool. I think that would be blocks. No. <laughs> Oh, I like all the. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's good They're sturdy. Sturdy. They can throw them. <laughs> Encourages creativity in kids. Big round for blocks. <laughs> the first story tonight was written by Chenda, Speak Muse, and be performed by Carolyn. Let's begin with a poem. The first poem I ever read in public. When Cambodia is far away, my father stood in an execution line. So goes the story I've been eavesdropping on, my father's voice studying the end of dinners with colleagues, family parties, any kind of get together. I never ask how he stood on starving feet, who put him there, who went before him, what was it like to wait to die and then not? It's not really my story. As a small child, I stiffly slept beside his worn out body, holding my body still like a clutched talisman as the nights gave him no rest. During the day, I watched him construct his American dream, corporate job, house in the suburbs, graduate degrees, meticulous bricks, in an illusionary wall keeping us from trauma and torment. On the morning of September 11th, I watched the towers collapse on a television screen in my dorm room. The day after, my poetry professor brought cut pineapple to class, which we all sank into in silence. No words for the sharp, sweet taste of our surreal, altered world. Then later, I learned that pineapple in Cambodia was slang for spies. <laughs> I never know what to say to my father, faithful convert, steadfast in his manifest destiny. I gave up his mother tongue for my own myth-making. I could not do otherwise. Still, I am the American he built from his own shattering. What wall could ever contain this relentless story? 
this poem about memory and the ways we don't and perhaps can't know each other was the beginning. But it also served as a new way for me to speak, a channel for all the stories I could no longer hold in silence. I didn't start writing in earnest until Trump was elected. <laughs> Maybe I had never cared enough. My family and I arrived in the United States as refugees during the Reagan era. I was raised with a certain reverence for the Republican Party and American, meaning white, exceptionalism. As I matured and made my own way in the world, I outgrew my parents' politics, but I still believed in the general goodness of people, in our nonpartisan power to stop evil. Then I witnessed how easily people would swallow any barely disguised racism or misogyny or xenophobia or paranoia, how simple and nearly automatic a vote for tyranny would be. My parents, who survived a genocide, who lived through unspeakable evil, who then regurgitated Fox News, voted for Trump. <laughs> and there was nothing any of us could say to them. I showed this poem to my father a while after it had been published. I sat on my couch, and he sat in a flimsy folding chair in my cramped New York apartment. After he read it, he started to piece together his story, keeping me up deep into the night. There had been a sick cousin in another labor camp, but my father didn't have permission to go see him. He got caught out of his section and was taken to be punished, but his Khmer Rouge village leader took a liking to him, so my father was spared. His cousin, though, would die alone from his illness. I was struck by how utterly arbitrary survival could be. The hairline border between death and its delay. My father, however, thinks he was rewarded for being obedient and a good worker. I won't probe that delicate spot, but I saw how writing could open space for us to access that touchstone experience too intense for either of us to approach directly. Writing was a place of never imagined before abundance. I never thought of myself as a writer, capital W. Never been bold enough to claim that capital letter. Sometimes I sift through memories, searching for signs of writerdom, like when I was four and wrote stories with a teacher, <laughs> where I strung together different letters over pictures and narrated to her. I thought everyone had their own private alphabet, and our lives were spent translating for one another. Then there was the writing contest I won in first grade, also the glorious rapt hours in the library and afterwards at home with piles of borrowed books, and surely all this and my high scores on the verbal sections of standardized tests were the marks of a burgeonary literary calling. <laughs> the thing is, I have no ambition. <laughs> After I won that writing contest in the first grade for a story about bears going on a walk, I remember thinking, I could have made the story better, but I was tired of writing, so I didn't. <laughs> I sensed that the labor writing required of me might be too arduous. My seven-year-old self wondered if I could ever devote myself to the crucible of creative writing. I told adults that I wanted to be a writer, and they all patted me on the head and then ignored me. Even before Trump was elected, I understood that people did not see me wholly. I was a trophy. A miracle, a human interest story, a cautionary tale. Once, a white teacher accused me of cheating in front of my almost entirely white class. The reason? I was so far ahead of everyone else. 
I finished the textbooks before the half year mark. I scored perfect on pop quizzes and answered all the extra credit. Finally, when I turned in a summer reading list that was twice as long as anyone else's, a classmate complained that they couldn't catch up to me. I guess that the teacher felt sympathy for them because she told them that I lied, that I hadn't read all those books. She spoke with such authority, I nearly believed her. <laughs> she almost succeeded in erasing my daily trips to the library, my joyous immersion in those new worlds that stretched beyond everyone's expectations for me. I didn't stand up for myself. It's a lesson I carry. Her excessive, exclusive solicitude, my searing humiliation, and that seed of smallness and self-doubt. Can anyone be blamed for the kind of narratives we're fed? So many people will just eat up the harrowing story of how my family came to the United States. My mother herself relishes the tale of our escape from Cambodia. How my father had needed to flee before I was born, and so I came into the world without a father to welcome me. Then when I was just a few months old, she walked with me to the Thai border in search of him. She tells people I never cried, which is why she didn't have to leave me in the jungle like other babies she encountered on her journey. Was my survival due to silence? Was I somehow innately wise to the dangers? It's a believable myth. I was a clever child, precocious. But after I had my own children, I realized that my mother was wrong. There can be no heroes in this kind of story. Yes, I survived because of her courage and her mothering. She kept me wrapped to her body. As she skirted landmines, I was soothed by her close heartbeat. When I hungered, she put her nipple in my mouth. When I was tired, I slept against her warmth. Like so many other mothers, she put one foot in front of the other and moved instinctively forward into an unwritten future. But I don't and can't know why those other babies were abandoned. What kind of horrors did their mothers and fathers live through and fear so much that they would leave them behind? The Khmer Rouge not only destroyed Cambodia's political, social, economic, and cultural structures, they, like all authoritarian regimes, obliterated any sense of rightness in the world. We were saved from the trauma of family separation, but our life was still built on a bedrock of fractures, as fortunate as they may be. In the refugee camp, my mother ran into my father only by chance. And when I met him for the first time, I refused to get close to him and cried. My silence broken. I know there's no light without its corresponding shadow. I started writing because I had to. Not to persuade or argue, to convince anyone of my worth or their own, but because I'm not just a living human face on an unbelievable story. Because it is you and your attention that gives life to all stories. I write to stake my claim in the moral arc of the universe, which I think is less an arc and more a field. Our stories are seeds. This is the only ground we have to plant them. This common ground may be too sullied for anyone decent to stand on, but we must. If I, speaking from the other side of terror and silence, will not work this yielding earth, who will? 
I write so that our gaze, our field of vision will widen. To not just see the betrayals, but their essential ease. Not just the survivors, but the torn roots. Not just the quiet baby, but the desperate nursing mother. So that we will consider just how teeming the silence of loss is. From here, may we open our imagination in the direction of justice, making its way home in our ever-expanding humanity. In Carolyn Castilia's story, A Friend Request, the author looks back at a time in her early 20s when she chose comfort over vulnerability and suffering over fulfillment. A small gesture reminds her how people who pass through our lives can show back up on our radar years later to remind us how we've weathered life storms. My question for you is, because we talked about chatting more and getting to know each other better, is that I wanted to know uh, the best prank that you've ever played on someone <laughs> that can be recorded for a podcast. <laughs> Here's the thing. I am a comedian, but I am very anti-prank. Okay. However, I have been pranked, uh, and I lived with a college roommate. We had a bat in our house. Um, it's horrifying if you've never been in a rural home that can get bats in the house. Don't. Um, and uh, we were all terrified screaming as the bat swooped down and tried to live in our hair it was a nightmare right so my roommate thought it was hilarious it's actually funny 20 years later um, that's a slow burn <laughs> my roommate thought it was hilarious to put little rubber bats everywhere in the house <laughs> and one time I opened up the fridge and like the crisper drawer there was a rubber bat and I was like Fuck this, I'm out! <laughs> so, yeah, that's the worst nice. prank that's ever been pulled on me. I also like the alliteration of blocks and bats. So, we're going to hear uh, a friend request written by Carolyn and performed by Chenda. <clears throat> a friend request. I met Adam when I was 22 at my first job in New York. I was a temp at Morgan Stanley on 49th and Broadway, right in the heart of Times Square. It was exciting at my tender age to be in Times Square every day, because I was pursuing musical theater back then, and would joke to my family that I was already working on Broadway. <laughs> Couldn't be far off. Adam and I sat next to each other at work. He executed trades for the salespeople and I was the assistant to their assistant, Mary Ellen. <laughs> Mary Ellen was a cherub, deliciously pink and plump, with short red hair and a dazzling smile. She was going out on maternity leave shortly after I got there to have her second baby, but I didn't know it. She said to me, what? Did you think I was just this fat? <laughs> <laughs> she was fun and funny, and she liked me enough to take me under her wing. This was the fall of 2000, right before the dot-com boom went bust. There was money everywhere. The sales guys had so much money, they had a you-fly, I-buy policy for errands. When I first heard one of them say it, I had no idea what he was talking about. Roger, the tallest, smoothest, and most Kendallish of the bunch, <laughs> sauntered over to me. 
his dick hovering just above my face. <laughs> you fly, I buy, he smized. I thought he was offering me a free vacation. <laughs> I looked at him puzzled, and he was disappointed in having to translate his 1950s radio DJ lingo. <laughs> Would you go get us coffee? I'll give you $20, and you can get something for yourself. And then he winked. Keep the change. Adam was different. He wasn't loud like the sales guys. He wasn't full of bravado. He just quietly did his job and joked with those of us at the most junior level. He liked to watch the Doppler radar. <laughs> did he go to school for meteorology? I think so. <laughs> But no one actually becomes a meteorologist. <laughs> there are like five meteorologists in the entire country. <laughs> Meteorology is harder to break into than showbiz. Adam sat to my left and Mary Ellen to his left, so I was constantly looking in his direction. And Mary Ellen was constantly trying to set us up. Carolyn, she said in her New York accent, why don't you go out with Adam? I was in a long-distance relationship at the time with the man I ultimately married. I was a very chaste Catholic girl, and I would never consider cheating on anyone, let alone my long-term boyfriend. I was new to New York, but I could already tell this place was sleazy. <laughs> because I knew I was never going to cheat on my boyfriend, I didn't see any harm in becoming friends with Adam. I mean, he was cute. And I liked his hands. That's really all you see of people at work, you know? A little bit of sexy forearm. And <laughs> out at the end of a shirt. I knew I was myself around Adam. Because these were people at work. What was there to hide? I was funny and dramatic and loud and quiet and charming and a mess. <laughs> Even though he was a young businessman in a button-down, Adam seemed intrigued by me. One day, he told me, as if confessing something secret. You remind me of my drama teacher. I liked her. <laughs> I hated that he said that. I did not want to remind someone of their wacky former drama teacher. <laughs> and most importantly, I did not want to be liked. Being liked like that made me angry because it made me feel vulnerable. And I was not ready to feel vulnerable, not with a man. Nope, I liked my relationship with my boyfriend where there was zero vulnerability. <laughs> my comfort zone. <laughs> I think Adam sensed my relationship with my boyfriend wasn't the one for me, but he never said anything about it. He just let Mary Ellen poke fun at us and quietly came to see me in a show. His interest in me wasn't flashy, it was steadfast. I was a tornado, and he was just a nice boy who liked to watch the weather. <laughs> Toward the end of our nine months working together, Adam said we should have dinner, just the two of us. I mean, it wasn't a date because it wasn't a date, but it was absolutely, definitely, 100% a date. <laughs> we went to the Thai restaurant we always grab lunch delivery from. And like many New York restaurants that deal in mostly delivery, the place was empty and dim. 
The decor was that strange A's hotel combination of dark teal and salmon pink, <laughs> but the food was good. I had only been on one other formal restaurant date where you sit down across from each other and pretend that eating is a really delicate, lovely act. <laughs> and it's delightful conversation. <laughs> Instead of the shoveling food into your face event, it really is. <laughs> that one was with my boyfriend when we first met, and it made me so nervous. This one was different. It was fun and easy. We went for a walk afterwards, and Adam dropped me off at the train. We didn't kiss goodbye, because neither one of us was going to be improprietous. <laughs> but we hugged. I wanted to kiss him. He was cute and kind, and he made me feel special. The idea of him was so full of positive possibility that I just couldn't. Kissing him would have been choosing something good for myself. And being Catholic, I didn't believe that was allowed. <laughs> I felt so guilty I, that I'd gone on this date-not-date. But I knew I let myself go for a reason. It meant there were more problems with my boyfriend than I was willing to admit. I used it as leverage to get my boyfriend to shape up. <laughs> There's a boy who likes me here, you know. We went on a date. I wanted my boyfriend to feel bad. But he didn't care that he had competition. He told me I could choose. I left the city in June to go do summer theater in Maryland. While I was there, I got an email from one of the guys we worked with on the desk. Adam wants to come visit you, it said. I was livid. I had made my choice. Not that I told Adam that, or that he even knew there was a choice being made. <laughs> I made it internally. I was not going to let go and try for happiness when I had a very sure, very difficult thing I could rely on. <laughs> I chose my suffering, got engaged to it, then married. Eleven years later, I got sick of suffering, so I left. <coughs> that spring, on a gorgeous day, soon after I left, I thought about it. I was outside in my mother's yard, sun streaming through the leaves on the trees. I wonder if Adam got married. I bet he did. I bet he and his wife have a house in Connecticut. <laughs> I decided to go find out. I looked, him on the, I looked him up on Facebook, but I didn't send a friend request. I just wanted to see his picture. His life wasn't what I thought. He had moved to Florida. He had a pretty girlfriend. He looked happy. I didn't think about Adam for years after that. But then one day, a few weeks ago, he flashed in my mind like a fire. I had just returned from a trip to McAllen, Texas, to help asylum seekers, where I ended up having the unlikely opportunity to confront Nancy Pelosi face-to-face -face about when she was going to impeach the president. <laughs> it was an overwhelming experience. I started to have bad anxiety while I was in Texas because I was steeped in a major humanitarian crisis. When I came home, after speaking truth to power and helping people at their most vulnerable, I guess I was finally ready to be vulnerable too. 
I quickly logged into Facebook and typed Adam's name in the search box. Boom. There he was. Fuck. He was super buff now. <laughs> like really fucking hot. Hot enough to show everyone how hot you are with a shirtless profile pic hot. <laughs> I don't feel guilty for ogling him. Because I liked him when he was a 22-year-old meteorology dork, and all I could see was Before I could even think about it or stop myself, I pressed add friend. He accepted, very quickly. I sent him a note right away, pretending he had come up in my people you may know. <laughs> he wrote back immediately. We started messaging back and forth, filling each other in on what we'd been doing with our lives for the last 20 years. I asked him if he really never got married and why. He told me why he thought he had it. And then I spilled my guts. For no reason, other than the fact that I've been living with peak anxiety while I watched the end of the world, what did I have to lose? I typed. Anyway, Adam, the thing I wanted to say to you is, I have thought about you from time to time over the years. I don't know if you were truly interested in me when we were super young, but what I remember of that time is that you sh have shown some interest and were actually a really nice person. And I just was not sure how to deal with that. I had such a harsh, unloving childhood, and I spent most of my adult life with men who I knew really didn't or couldn't love me. But I just wanted to prove myself to be lovable so badly that someone like you might have just liked me without me having to earn anything. It was so foreign. It was terrifying. So I pushed the idea away gently because I, I didn't know what else to do. I'm sorry. He replied. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I think that's so funny. It's so open and honest. I mean, what else could you say to 20 years of pent-up emotion from a woman you never even kissed? <laughs> he went on. Well, thanks for sharing this with me. I do remember enjoying your company, and I liked working next to you. You were funny and had a great energy. He told me some things he'd been going through and said, my words came at the right time. I told my mother that I did this. And she told me she remembered me talking about Adam 20 years ago and that things like this come back around. You don't know what you did for that man today, Carolyn, she said. You might have saved his life. Is anything good going to come from this for you? No. <laughs> but you really might have helped him. But something good did come from this for me, though. I told the truth. 20 years later... I can admit that I had wished I had chosen possibility instead of suffering, vulnerability instead of pain, that I still want to, cho want to choose that. I don't know why I needed this man, who I worked with for just nine months, to hear me say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, I chose wrong, I chose suffering when I should have chosen myself. But I did. I needed to say it, and I needed him to hear it. I needed to know that as I sit here, worried and spinning myself into a tornado at the end of the world, I could send him a letter, 
and he would observe my words calmly, see them like blips on the radar screen, and say, wow, okay, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.